Well, hello, music teacher friends. Welcome to episode number 66 of the Beyond Measure podcast. This is me, Christina Whitlock, your anytime piano teacher friend, coming at you with this week's dose of camaraderie from someone who knows the harried life of studio teaching. All right, so this is it. Our final episode in this three-part series on preparing your students for performance. I have never camped out on a single topic for this long, but I mean, let's face it, it's a really big one. (laughs) I have had to come to terms through this series with the fact that I cannot possibly begin to tell you everything I think and feel about this process, but we're going to consider this series the highlight reel of sorts, right? (laughs) If you ever find yourself wanting to take more of a deep dive into any of the topics you hear on this show, do keep in mind that I offer a limited number of coaching and consulting appointments each month. Every episode I write for this show ends up with like two-thirds of it on the cutting room floor so I can stick to my 20-ish minute goal for this podcast. So suffice to say, if you ever feel like there's more to a topic you would like to learn, I probably have a lot more to say about it. And even if you just want a more casual opportunity to chat through this stuff, There is always my community of friends over on my Patreon site, and there we can message about all kinds of things. And of course, we have this really awesome monthly Zoom chat uh, with some of my very favorite teachers in all the world. In fact, our February Zoom party is coming up this Friday, the 25th. So if you want to hang out with some incredible teachers and talk about whatever is on your mind later this week, $13 buys you your ticket in. And <laughs> Check the link in my show notes uh, for details. Okay, so moving on. Drum roll, please. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, music teacher friends of all ages, <laughs> I present to you part three of our series on preparing students for performance. Today is all about action items, as in things you can actually do to help students perform at their best. First up, I wanted to tell you that I am a huge fan of rehearsing our inner dialogue So you and I both know that while you're performing, the second you allow yourself to think, oh boy, here comes that one passage. I hope I don't miss that octave again. (laughs) Well, as soon as that thought enters your mind, you've basically lost the battle already, right? (laughs) It truly does come down to keeping our thoughts focused on what we want to accomplish, not what we hope does not happen. It's like this. When I was in middle school, I was at a weekend camp for like an anti-drug and alcohol organization that I was part of. And one of the speakers told us that if you want to help people stay away from destructive behaviors, you want to encourage them to do the positive things, 
rather than like come at them with all the things they should not be doing. (laughs) The example they used was, if you tell someone not to think about a purple monkey riding on a unicycle, the first thing they're going to do is picture a purple monkey riding on a unicycle, right? I mean, it's so true. This applies to parenting, it applies to your peer groups, and yes, it very much applies in music teaching. I always find that as a performer, my first step off the cliff is to think about something that I hope does not happen, or something that I don't want to do, or even that thought of, yikes, I hope I don't forget this passage that's coming up. (laughs) By allowing the mere possibility of that thought to enter my brain space, I pretty much always end up setting myself up for disaster. So when I am preparing for a performance, I am pretty dogged about preparing my own inner dialogue. For every bit that I can control, I plan what I want to be thinking about in any given moment of a performance. I just think of it like memorizing a script for a play or something. Since this process works so well for me as a performer, Well, of course, I help my students prepare the same way. In the final weeks leading up to a performance, we talk a lot about what we want to be thinking about in every section of their piece. If nothing else, here's your big takeaway from today's episode. Are you ready? (laughs) Keeping of our brains busy on what we want to do keeps us from letting insecurities and doubts and questions and all of those other things enter the picture. So, okay, what do we want to focus on while we play? Well, first of all, I always, always, always make sure that my students can talk themselves through their initial hand position on the piano. I know so many pianists myself included, who bear the scars of like one performance where despite all of the memory prep work under the sun, we sat down at the piano and could not find our opening hand position. (laughs) Like everything else was memorized except for where to start. (laughs) That is, by the way, the worst feeling of all time. So assuming we're playing from memory, I make sure and like I like quadruple check this <laughs> that my students have a little mental script prepared for how to walk themselves through where their hands begin. They kind of always roll their eyes at me, but hey, if it spares them that crisis of questioning later, <laughs> I'll take it. All right, so from there, our mental scripts are quite individualized to the person and, of course, to the piece they're playing. I really wish I could tell you that all of my students followed a super detailed map of every single harmonic progression in their piece and could like constantly tell you when they're in the dominant and where minor six comes out to play, and you get the idea. Well, some of my students can do that. But for those who have not yet learned to embrace the way harmonic analysis can inform our playing for the better, well, I've worked out a few other strategies for them. 
For example, let's say you have a mid-elementary piano student who is playing a piece that moves hand positions multiple times. Or maybe it's a string student who plays primarily on two different strings. Whatever. Have you ever tried naming those positions something like completely unrelated to their theoretical role? (laughs) The other day, I had this darling little student of mine, and she was struggling with the fact that her piece changed positions several times. There were a total of three different hand positions used, so we decided to name her opening position Muncie, (laughs) and that is, of course, after the town in which we live. Therefore, every time her hands needed to move to that particular position, we referred to it as Muncie. (laughs) I asked her another place that she liked to travel, and she immediately replied, Yorktown, (laughs) which made me laugh because Yorktown is a small town just adjacent to Muncie, so it just seemed kind of funny (laughs) because not necessarily an exotic locale, right? (laughs) Well, her second hand position was therefore labeled Yorktown. So we took little sticky notes. And before we go any further, let's just pause and take a moment of praise for sticky notes of every single size, shall we? (laughs) The music teacher's best friend, I know. (laughs) But we took these little skinny post-it notes and we labeled them Muncie and Yorktown and we placed them all through her piece so she knew which place she used which location. (laughs) Her final hand position of the piece um, only came into play one time at the very end, and we decided to think of a very special location (laughs) to which she chose Key West, because of course she went there on vacation last year. So in the end, (laughs) we ended up naming these three different hand placements, Muncie, Yorktown, and Key West. (laughs) friends. I can't begin to tell you how much easier it was for her to find these locations on the keyboard once we gave them these silly names, even though there was nothing remotely connected between the two. I often do this by assigning passage work um, a character name or a family member name or an emotion, or a color, or, you know, anything a student is going to connect the best to. And whether the student will ultimately be playing from memory or not, having those points of reference that students can easily latch onto helps them build those internal scripts that I feel so strongly about. I can guarantee you my little student will never play this piece again without thinking about her hand position travels between Muncie, Yorktown, and Key West. Okay, so we've talked about building our inner dialogue and the philosophy that we need to keep our brains busy with what we want to do so we don't end up thinking about what not to do, right? Yes. (laughs) Let's now talk about how to really make sure we know that we know what we know. (laughs) Did you follow that one? (laughs) How to make sure we know what we know. Without diving too deep into the neurological science involved, I will tell you this. Information solidifies inside our brains on a whole new level if we have to use that information in a new location. 
Okay, hang with me here. I'm going to be quick on these next few points because I know the clock is ticking. But we all know the importance of like shaking things up during the practice process, right? Meaning, rather than repeating the same passage like 60 times, we really need to do something at least slightly different with every few sets of repetitions. There are all kinds of music teacher tricks in this regard. I mean, sometimes we tweak the rhythm of the passage. Sometimes we shift it to another octave on the instrument. Sometimes we play it with a different articulation or in a different style or tempo or, again, whatever your imagination comes up with. Trust me on this one, okay? Because it might seem a little bizarre at first, (laughs) but do you ever have students try their passages in a different location. So for me, as a piano teacher, I will sometimes have students get up from the acoustic piano we work on, and I'll make them go play problematic passages on the digital piano I have across the room. This, by the way, is my favorite thing about having a digital piano in the studio. I will have students wander back and forth between the two instruments until they are playing that passage solidly on both instruments. Now, granted, if I was teaching a flute lesson, which I used to do, I would probably not be handing over my instrument to my student. However, I can't help but wonder this. What would happen if I had that flute student wander to a different room of my house or even a different corner of the same room or even just facing a different direction, whatever? I believe very wholeheartedly in this science of taking information to a new location. And I would be really curious if any music teachers out there of other instruments have any luck with that. So, By the way, if you try it, please let me know if it fosters any kind of result. You can tag me on socials or send me an email at beyondmeasurepodcast at (laughs) gmail.com. Along the same lines, we all know the dangers of relying too strongly on physical memory or physical impulses. All instrumentalists can identify the dangers of depending too much on those physical characteristics. And of course, we are completely thrown for a loop once that performance adrenaline kicks in and obliterates any familiarity that once existed. Well, friends, I have many solutions for this. Some, of course, are more inventive than others. Of course, my favorite is very simply just ultra super ridiculously slow practice, just for a few measures at a time. This, of course, eliminates any of those physical impulses, and it also gives your brain plenty of time to overthink and second-guess and do all the things it likes to do given the opportunity. Again, it helps you prove that you really do know what you know. I also like to ask my students to notate the melody of their piece or the accompanying lines of their piece or whatever it might be, but I love to have them notate that on the staff itself. So if you know, if you've tried this, you know it's super challenging, but again, it shows whether you know your stuff or, well, if you don't. One of my very favorite things to do is this. 
I'm going to try really hard to explain it well, but I have dry erase markers that are small and then on the end of the cap, there's like a really soft eraser built into the tip of the cap of the marker. So I like to hand one of these to my students, specifically elementary level students, and I will let them hold that marker like kind of in their fist and I challenge them to play their piece or a portion of their piece with just the tip of that marker. So again, we're talking just like the fuzzy, gentle, soft end of the marker on my piano keys for the record. <laughs> so imagine for a second, oh, I don't know, like twinkle, twinkle, little star. So I want to know if a student can visually see that initial jump from C, C up to G, G, or if they're just used to playing fingers one and five. So when you remove individual fingers from the equation altogether, it proves that, yeah, the student knows what they know, or again, on the contrary, that maybe they don't. It's a very telling exercise. I hope I explained that with some sense of coherence here. Um, I'll try to post a video on Instagram later this week. Uh, you could use anything, of course, maybe like a popsicle stick or whatever, but I have found those little dry erase markers with the nice soft tips to be just perfect. All right, one last thing, and I happen to think it's kind of a big one. Have you ever considered using a performance journal with your students? Well, I think you should. <laughs> and here's the gist. The performance journal I use is very simple. And spoiler alert, I am going to share mine with you. There is a link in the show notes for this episode. You can click it and go download my version of my performance journal. Um, by the way, I had pipe dreams of redesigning it like fancier for you, but this one uh, is just one of those cases where done is definitely better than perfect. <laughs> you know what I mean. So my performance journal is something simple you can do with your students like the week after the performance. It's pretty self-explanatory once you see it, but it basically walks students through a few reflection questions based on their preparations for the performance as well as their experience in the performance itself. This can be super helpful when it comes to developing more awareness of our own performance tendencies, as well as looking for trends over the course of multiple performances. Anyway, it's a tool I love. I like to hand them out the week before a performance with the expectation that students are going to complete it after their performance is finished and then bring it back to their lesson the following week. Um, but you get to decide what you want to do with it. <laughs> all right. I know I really, really, really have to leave all of this here for right now, but I do hope that you found a nugget or two here today that was helpful for you. Again, if you have more you'd ever like to talk about, I'm here for you, friend. In the meantime, let's have a toast, shall we? <laughs> Music teacher friends of the world. Today, I just want to give you props for all the aspects of music study we juggle as teachers. 
I know that we all have different opinions about the role of performance in developing musicians, but I do think we can all agree that we carry at least some responsibility to help expose our students to the joy of sharing music with others, right? (laughs) We already know our own skills are strengthened through teaching others, So my hope is that this series has been beneficial to you, both as an artist and as a teacher. Those are both really important hats you wear, my friend. Cheers to you and all the roles you play in your very important life. Hear, hear. Thank you for dealing with me and my many, many, many thoughts when it comes to preparing our students for performance. With so many ideas left out on the cutting room floor, I can never help but wonder if the right ideas made the cut or not, but I do hope that something here leaves you feeling more effective in the coming months. Next week, ooh, guess what? This is a good one. I am sharing the number one piece of advice I have ever received from a teacher. Ever. (laughs) That's a big claim, right? Well, it's something that I repeat often, and I imagine you might moving forward also. So, for now, there's your teaser. That's a wrap on episode number 66. Check the show notes for all kinds of good stuff. Come follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond Measure Podcast. And with that, I will just tell you, hey, onward and upward, my teacher friends. I will see you back here next week. <laughs>